For those of you that I have not had the opportunity to meet yet or have not heard me preach here at Grace Covenant before, my name is Tim Coyle. I am a retired pastor and my wife and I moved down here to Williamsburg three years ago this past March. We moved here from northern Delaware, but that doesn't mean that we were new to Grace Covenant when we moved here, because for the previous 18 years, we had been coming down to Colonial Williamsburg, actually several times a year. We liked it that much and uh, finally decided to move here. In, in fact, some of you know uh, Steve and Jean Louie. Uh, they were once a part of Grace Covenant Church. Mary grew up with Steve and Jean in uh, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. In fact, Jean was instrumental in Mary coming to know the Lord. And one time uh, Steve said to us, you guys have all the earmarks of someone who will end up living in Williamsburg. And, <laughs> and of course they were, they were right. But we had the opportunity to meet another member of Grace Covenant. Um, as, as I said, I was, I was pastoring, so we didn't get down here very often on the weekend until I started, um, I went back to school. I was going to Westminster Theological Seminary outside of Philadelphia, working on a PhD, which freed us up more on a weekend. And so when we would come down to Williamsburg on the weekend, we would worship here at Grace Covenant. But we had actually met Brian Sempers at Colonial Williamsburg. At the time, he worked for CW, and he portrayed the dissenting Presbyterian minister, James Waddell. Uh, that Presbyterian church is located down near the House of Burgesses at CW. And in fact, one year, we heard Brian speak and do his presentation of James Waddell and appreciated it so much, we went back again a day or two later. And in the, the middle of Brian's presentation, he recognized us and said, you all were here once before, weren't you? And we said, yes. And so we really enjoyed what you had to say and wanted to hear more. And after that, he referred to Mary and me as his groupies. <laughs> but uh, we were very glad that Grace Covenant is here in Williamsburg because we wanted to worship at a Reformed church. And we're very glad to be living here in Williamsburg, very glad to be a part of this church, and very glad for the opportunity to be able to preach. I'll actually be preaching today and next Sunday. And you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. My plan originally was to preach on the conclusion of Psalm 73, which is verses 23 through 28. And then next, and as you see in your bulletin, this message is entitled, The Greatness of Our God. And then next week, I was going to preach a sermon that I was going to entitle, The Greatness of Our Salvation. But as I began to study this passage more and more in Psalm 73, I very quickly realized that I would not be able to do it justice in the way I wanted to do in one message. So we'll actually be here in Psalm 73 for two weeks 
uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. And the other message that I hope to preach will say for another time. But if you would, um, you can follow along as I read these verses in Psalm 73, beginning with verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now, in these verses, we see six ways that God reveals his greatness through the goodness to his children. We're going to be looking at the background of this psalm, the story that this psalm tells, in the first two of these ways, and we'll look at the other four next week. But let me say this. Several, several summers ago, Dennis preached a wonderful message on this psalm, on Psalm 73. And Dennis actually preached through the whole psalm, which with this type of psalm, you really need to do because this psalm does tell a story. And Dennis communicated that very well. But this psalm is just long enough that it doesn't allow one to really develop a particular verse or uh, maybe several verses because there just isn't time to do that. But this passage that I just read happens to be one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament and really in the entire Bible. So it is my delight this morning to, to be able to come back to Psalm 73 and to take a closer look at these closing verses. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence. We know that you are with us every day, everywhere we go. But you're with us in a very special way as we come here together as your children to worship you. And Father, we pray that you would now quiet our hearts, open our minds, that we might be receptive to the things the Spirit would lay upon our hearts this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we look at the story that we see here in Psalm 73. And verse 1 gets off to a very good start. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And would it be nice if we could just go from there right down to verse 23, which says, Nevertheless, I, can, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and so on and so forth. What a lovely psalm this would be. Truly a psalm of, of praise and adoration of God. Just a wonderful, wonderful psalm it would be. 
But unfortunately, the writer of this psalm, Asaph, had a, a problem. And he introduces us to that problem in verse 2. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, it could have been worse because he said, my feet almost stumbled and my steps nearly slipped. He's going to tell us what he means by that a few verses later. But here's the issue he was dealing with in verse 3. For I was envious of the wicked when I saw the prosperity. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And, and he goes on about this all the way down through verse 12. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. At the time, that was a sign of richness and prosperity. Being fat was a good thing, very unlike today. But he goes on about this. The way he looked at, at those who were considered to be wicked and arrogant. In essence, he was saying, they get away with everything they do. They live totally contrary to God and nothing happens. But he doesn't mention that directly. And you see, when we have a problem with our circumstances, when we begin to complain about the way things are around us, about our life situation, if we do truly believe that God is sovereign over all things, over the bad things as well as the good, then ultimately our complaining is against God. And really, he begins to allude to that uh, when we see in verse 9, he says, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struck through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now, almost all authorities on the book of Psalms acknowledge that verse 10 is rather difficult to interpret. But the general idea, clearly, is that their numbers are growing because they see what they're getting away with, they envy them, and then they begin to become like them. And you know we have exactly the same problem today, don't we? When you look in the inner city, who is it that dresses well, that drives the fancy cars, that live very, very comfortably? It's the drug dealers. And there are those around them, especially young men growing up in the inner city, that look at those, their neighbors who are working hard with an honest job and compare them to the drug dealers who have the fancy cars, the fancy clothes, and it looks like a life of ease. And who are they going to follow? Because they too want the good things of life like everybody else. Things have not changed all that much from the days of Asaph. And Asaph struggled with this. <clears throat> and ultimately, what he's saying is, God, why don't you do something? Why do you allow this to persist? <clears throat> and then, in verse 13, he compares his lot in life to that of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean 
and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, but look at me. On the other hand, I have strived to obey God and to walk with God. And what did I get from my troubles? In verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What he's saying here is, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, I have nothing but trials and turmoil in my life. What has my obedience to God gotten me? What good has it been? Especially in comparison to those who totally ignore your law and walk in wickedness. And then he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That is a very, very significant statement. Asaph is saying, had I spoken what was on my heart, I could have betrayed an entire generation. Now think of that. Now, as I preach here this morning, everyone in this room is hearing me. There are those who are watching the service being live streamed that are hearing this message as well. Perhaps a few later on will hear the sermon because it will be recorded. But there is no way that I think that this sermon is going to affect an entire generation. Even if, if I preached every Sunday, I do not for a moment think that I would have an impact worthy of being described as affecting an entire generation. Even someone like Tim Keller, as great a preacher as he is, and with a great insight into God's word that he has had, would never say, I have the power to influence an entire generation. Would that that be true? Would that anyone in this country who preaches the word of God could have that kind of effect and impact? But we know that we don't. But Asaph could say that without exaggeration. <clears throat> well then, who is this fellow by the name of Asaph? We don't realize it, but he was one of the most significant figures in his day in ancient Israel. Asaph lived during the time of King David. And you might recall that uh, during the days of David, Israel still worshiped at the tabernacle. The tabernacle is much like the temple, except that the temple is a fixed building that would be built later. The tabernacle, um, uh, God gave Israel the instructions for how the tabernacle was to be built, what was to be included in it, what was to take place there. All that we find in the book of Exodus while Israel was still wandering for 40 years after they left Egypt until they came to the Promised Land. And this tabernacle, um, the word can also be translated as tent, could be taken down and moved as God directed and then set up again. And they continued that way for 40 years, but they continued with the tabernacle even after Israel began to settle the Promised Land. 
And it was David who finally conquered the city of Jerusalem and wanted the tabernacle to be established in Jerusalem. So he built a tabernacle, a tent, and he had the Ark of the Covenant brought into Jerusalem and placed in that tabernacle that he had built. And we find all of this in the book of First Chronicles. And in the book of First Chronicles, we see that there was this huge procession that David put together and David commanded uh, that would accompany bringing the ark into the city of Jerusalem. And it was to be led by the Levites. There were, the Levites were the descendants of one of the sons of Jacob, Levi. And they were designated as those whose responsibility would be the tabernacle and worship in the land in, in the land of Israel. Now, one family within the Levites, Moses' brother Aaron was a Levite, and his descendants were designated as priests. But all the other Levites would also help in the worship of ancient Israel. And Asaph was one of these Levites. There were men, we are told in 1 Chronicles 15, who were designated to sing and play musical instruments, including harps, lyres, and cymbals to accompany bringing the ark into Israel. And Asaph was one who played the cymbals as well as sang. And then in First Corinthians and First Chronicles, 16, chapter 16, we see something that we have never seen before in ancient Israel. David designates worship that is to take place at the tabernacle every day. It was to be accompanied by music. This would include singing that would invoke God's presence, that would give thanks to God and would praise him. And David appointed Asaph as chief over all of these who would be involved in this ministry of worship. Do you see what an important place Asaph had in the day of David? He could well have been the second best known person in the entire country because of this position that David had put him in. He would there be there leading the worship every day. We're also told in scripture that Asaph was a seer, that is a prophet. He wrote 12 of our Psalms, 11 more in addition to Psalm 73 that we're looking at this morning. And he continued as worship leader under Solomon. Now, I might mention as well that, you know, David, David desired to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. He had already built his own home and buildings for his, his government, and he wanted to build the temple for God. But God prevented him from doing that because he said that David had shed much blood on the earth. Not that he was out of God's will when he did that. He was king and they were, they were taking possession of, of the Holy Land and, and fighting against the Philistines, things that, that needed to be done. 
But he was not, he was disqualified, therefore, from building the temple. But God said to him, David, you will have a son whose name will be Solomon, and Solomon will have a kingdom of peace, and Solomon will build a temple for me. And that's exactly what happened. And Asaph continued even after David died and Solomon became king. He continued to be the one who was the worship leader in Israel. So this Asaph was a man who was indeed very, very important in ancient Israel. And therefore, it was no exaggeration for him to say, had I spoken thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And of course, what he's saying here is, if I would have shared my doubts about God and questioned what God was doing in Israel, allowing the wicked to thrive and to prosper like this, I would have misled an entire generation. And here he's probably referring to the younger generation. Now, older people who have walked with God all their lives have much more to go on than just what they hear for one individual man. But the younger generation is much more likely to be influenced by what they hear. And that's what David is saying. Have you ever stopped to think that the church is only one generation away from extinction? It's true. If we stop bringing other peoples to Christ and training up, discipling those who come to know Christ, the church would disappear. Now, we know God is not going to allow that to happen, but it shows the importance of the responsibility that we have to continue to share the gospel and bring people to Christ and train up people in the nurture and admonition of God's word so that the church might continue here on earth as God intends. And we need to be very careful when we have doubts, what we say verbally and express to other people, lest we lead them astray. Now, Asaph continued to wrestle with this. We see in verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He was still burdened with this. He had these doubts, but he knew that things weren't right. He couldn't reconcile all of this in his mind, and he was troubled. And then we come to verse 17, which is an amazing turning point in this whole psalm. And it says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. You see, Asaph was thinking all of these things to himself. He was conjuring up all of this in his own thinking. And he hadn't really gone before God. He hadn't brought this issue before God until we come to verse 17. And he says, then I went into the sanctuary of God. And actually, the word sanctuaries in the original Hebrew is plural. It says, until I went into the sanctuaries of God. Now, that's a bit confusing. That seems a little strange to us. 
There's not absolute agreement as to exactly what that means. It's used three other times, by the way, that is sanctuary in the plural, uh, and the other three times are also found in the book of Psalms. Sometimes it's translated as dwelling places of God. Other times it's translated just as we have here as the singular, the sanctuary of God. Now, very possibly, it could be a way of referring to the tabernacle because the tabernacle had three parts. It had the outer court, and then when we actually get into the tabernacle itself, there is the holy place where only the priests could enter into, and then separated by a curtain, only the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and there only the high priest could enter only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So in that way, the tabernacle could re be referred to in the plural as the sanctuaries of God because of these three parts of the tabernacle. Or it could refer to, in the plural, the things of God, the holy, holy th things that are sacred to God. And in fact, our word sanctuary is, is used the same way. Think of how the word sanctuary comes from the same root as the word sanctify or sanctification or the word saint. All of these words come from the same root word stem and the same is true in, in Hebrew. In that sense, it could refer to, if you keep in mind, the Bible had not yet been bound into a single book. The books of the Old Testament had not all been written yet. And those that were written were not in book form. They were in scrolls. And so the holy things of God could refer to the scrolls. And maybe it's all of this put together. It could be that Asaph went to the temple, went to the tabernacle. He couldn't enter into the holy place or holy of holies, but he could go into the, the outer courtyard and remember, when Jesus cleansed the temple, it was in one of these courtyards, which Jesus referred to as a house of prayer. And so that could well be, it could well be that in, in that location, Asaph began to read the Holy Word of God in the scrolls that had already been written. And as a result of that, what happened? The second part of verse 17 said, Then I discerned their end. Then Asaph came to have an entirely different understanding of the lot of the wicked. In reality, he says, Truly you set them in slippery places. Now this is very interesting. Notice, this is the first time he makes direct reference to God. And what does he say of God? Truly, you, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Hey, these wicked don't have such a good life after all. And the same is true with drug dealers. It's rare for a drug dealer to live beyond the age of 30. And young people know that they will might not live beyond the age of 30, but it's a better life than if they lived a way that is more honest. 
But David fully understood their nature now once he came before God. They're in slippery places. God brings them to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. What changed? Did the circumstance, circumstances of the wicked change? Not a bit. Not a bit. What changed was David's, was Asaph's perception of the wicked. And that change came when he came before God and saw things as God sees them, as God spoke them to Asaph's heart. And then as a result of that, Asaph enters into this tremendous praise to God beginning in verse 23. And the first thing that we see here is the first way that God shows his greatness in what he gives to his children is by giving us his presence. And that's exactly what we read in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Now, even before we, we look at that, Notice the very first word in verse 23, the word nevertheless. Nevertheless is one of those words in the Bible that causes us to look back to what precedes. It functions much in the way the word therefore in Scripture does, or even the word for. We need to understand what he just said in order to understand what he is about to say. And so when we look back to the two previous verses, he says in verses 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You see, when Asaph came into the presence of God in the sanctuary of God, he not only came to understand something about the wicked, but he also came to understand something about himself. He realized that the way he had been acting with regard to God was like that of a beast. He was being brutish. And in reality, he was ignorant. Now think of the difference between mankind and the animals. Animals act by instinct, but God has given to us the ability to reason, to think through things. Now it's true chimpanzees are able to fashion a stick that they can use into uh, the nest of termites to bring them out, they actually eat them. I guess to a chimpanzee, they're quite tasty. But fashioning that stick to use as a tool is still a far cry from assembling an automobile or building a computer. And yes, it's true that dogs can have a vocabulary of up to 160 words and some dogs have even been known to have a vocabulary of 200 words. And I love dogs, 
But that's still a far cry from being able to read, let alone write. Mankind is unique in his ability to reason and think things through. But there's another even more important thing that distinguishes us from animals, and that is that we have a spirit. We alone of all of God's creation are able to have a relationship with God, to be able to commune with God, to be able to learn from God. But what Asaph is saying here is, before I came, before the Lord, I was acting like an animal. I was acting out of instinct more than reason. And I was not utilizing one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, which is our spirit and our ability to commune with him. And when David did, he had an entirely different perspective on the wicked and on himself. So having said that, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And you see what Asaph is saying? Asaph has great appreciation for this. God would have been totally justified had he said to Asaph, I'm done with you. I've had it with you and your attitude. It's over. In a way, this is a bit like the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament, but on a much smaller scale. When Asaph realized the error of his ways, God received him back with full assurance. And why is it that he could say that he is continually with God? Is it because he realized the error of his ways, he realized his need for God, and he therefore then reached out to God? No. The second line tells us, nevertheless, I am continually with you because you hold my right hand. Now, there's another way to translate these words, just slightly different. And that is to translate this as, you have taken hold of my right hand, which I believe is a better way to understand what these verses say. And it's reflected in some of our other translations as well. For those of you who are grammar hounds, this all centers around the fact that the verb uh, that says, you hold my right hand or you have taken hold of my right hand is in the perfect tense. Now that means that it looks to an action that happened in the past but has consequences for the present. So the, the consequence for the present is, yes, you have hold of my right hand, but it's because in the past you have taken hold of my right hand. Again, doesn't this sound like the prodigal son? Here is Asaph realizing the error in the ways he was thinking. And as a result of that, God reaches down and has taken hold of his right hand. Indeed, our God is a, is a very, very forgiving God. Like we see in the parable of the prodigal son, always ready to receive us back with love and care and concern. 
Now, this nearness to God, this, this being able to be in the presence of God, as I said a moment ago, is, is something that we can easily, easily take for granted. But it was so important to the nation of Israel. It's what gave Israel their identity as the people of God, knowing that God was in their midst. God was present with them. As they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God was with them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as that pillar would move, Israel knew it was time for them to move. But until that pillar moved, they stayed right where they were. And then with the Ark of the Covenant being placed in the tabernacle, God's presence came down in the midst of, midst of Israel in the form of what we call the Shekinah glory. And that word Shekinah does not even appear in the Old Testament, but it means to dwell, to be present. And it emphasizes the presence of God with the nation of Israel in their midst. And because God was with them, they had assurance that they were pleasing God and that God would protect them, God would provide for them, God would lead them. It meant everything to Israel that God was with them. Now think about this great God whom we worship. This God knows the number of hairs on your head. We read in Matthew chapter 10. The population of the world today is now about 7.8 billion. God knows the number of hairs on the heads of everyone alive today. That same passage also tells us that God knows every time a sparrow falls anywhere in the world. And how does God know that? Because God is present everywhere in the world at the same time. God knows everything that is happening in the earth moment by moment because he is present. Now just imagine, God's presence exists everywhere on the face of the planet earth and yet he remains a person. Now some of the Eastern religions like Hinduism believe yes that God exists everywhere but they have reduced God to a force like gravity or electricity. He's not a personal God, but the true God is present everywhere and still remains a person. Now, don't try to understand that too hard. You'll get a headache. It's, it's just beyond our ability to comprehend. But to add to that, this God who exists everywhere exists as three persons who are of one essence. The Trinity. And not only is this true on planet Earth, our solar system, God is present everywhere in our solar system. From Sun to the first planet Mercury, all the way out to the last planet Pluto, covering a distance of 3.7 billion miles. And yet, 
ours and our sun is over a billion times as large as the earth. God knows everything that's happening within our sun, everything that's happening on every one of these planets in our solar system. Why? Because God is present there. And yet our solar system is part of a galaxy. Our sun is a star. And our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains a hundred billion stars. And God is present there with each one of them. God knows everything that is happening on every star in our galaxy. The diameter of our galaxy isn't measured in miles, it's measured in light years. And it is 100,000 light years across. And yet, our galaxy is only one of many galaxies in space. Anybody want to take a guess as to how many galaxies there are? It's estimated there are two trillion galaxies. And God is present in each one of them. Now that shows, <clears throat> yes, that shows the greatness of our God, that he is truly omniscient. He is present everywhere at all times. And yet... We can say of that same God, I am continually with him. And the operative word there is continually. This personal God is a God who cares so much for you and for me that he is continually with us because he has taken hold of our right hand. This great God is always with you. Now, is this what the Bible really teaches? Now, I know that many of you are familiar with Psalm 139, where David said, where can I flee from your presence? If I go into the deepest of the seas, you are there. If I go into the highest mountain, you are there. Everywhere I could go, you are there. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. But are you also familiar with Jeremiah 23? In verse 23, God asks this question. Do I not fill heaven and earth? And that's exactly what we were just talking about. Yes, indeed. This is the greatness of our God. And this great God of ours cares enough for you and me to be present with us continually. Now, it's very interesting that Asaph begins this psalm by saying, truly, God is good to Israel but when we get down to the conclusion of this psalm, he's no longer talking about Israel as a whole. He's talking about himself as an individual. He uses in these six verses 
the word I, my, mine, a total of 14 times. This is a very, very personal conclusion about a very, very personal God. Now, the second thing we find in verse 24 is this. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Just as God's presence is unbounded, so is his knowledge and his wisdom are beyond measure. And how does God counsel us? How does God guide us with his counsel? Well, of course, it's through his word. And next to his son, Jesus Christ, who died in payment for our sin, that we might have eternal life, the greatest gift God has ever given to us is his word. It is with us all the time. We being finite beings are in need of direction from an infinite God. But added to that, we are not just infinite beings, we are fallen beings. We are beings whose moral compass is broken. Now, our consciences are a vestige of that sense of right and wrong, but the more we violate our consciences, the more our consciences become hardened The Bible also says they become seared. In other words, they don't function the way they're supposed to. We indeed desperately need God's direction in our lives. And then the second line of this verse says, and afterward you receive me to glory. It's an unusual coupling, isn't it? That you provide me with your counsel and then you receive me to glory. But the reason they're brought together in one verse is the second line gives us the end of the race. This is what we aim for. This is where we end up. He's saying that, yes, throughout this life, when we so desperately need it, you provide us with counsel. And then in the end, you receive us to glory. What awaits us at the end of this life is being able to spend eternity with this great God, and it will indeed be glorious. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand amazed at who you are, and even more amazed that you could care for the likes of us. We who, like Asaph, have betrayed you, not only in our minds but in our actions, have turned, ran away from you, and yet you pursued us and brought us to yourself. We do indeed give you thanks for the salvation that is ours, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that enables us to have eternal life, that we might live forever with you. Our Father, we're amazed at what you have done for us, what you continue to do for us on a day-by-day basis. And we just give you thanks and praise for who you are 
and for the ways that you do indeed love us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen.